Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, writer Matthew Neal on his book An Atheist's History of Belief... And then columnist Suzanne Moore tells us about A Book of Dreams by Peter Reich. Matthew Neal studied modern history at Oxford University. He is the author of several novels, including The Wonderful English Passengers, which won the Whitbread Award and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. His latest book is a non-fiction book, An Atheist's History of Belief, Understanding Our Most Extraordinary Invention, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Matthew, thank you for being on Little Atoms, first of all. No, great. Great to be here. So, it's another atheist's book, right? We're sort of, (laughs) I guess, at the tail end of the whole new atheist thing now, something that we've inevitably covered in quite punishing detail on this radio show. But this is... This is slightly different take, isn't it? Why is this different to the books by mm. the likes of Richard Dawkins and what have you? I think it's different because I'm actually interested in religion. Because I think Richard Dawkins and people were... Their main idea was that religion is a waste of time. It's irrelevant. Science is what matters. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing else does. So we can really just forget about it and just uh, ignore it. We're better off not even thinking about it. And I have the view that actually it's fascinating and extremely important whether you believe in it or not. I don't believe in it, but I still think it's really important. And um, I don't think we're really going to understand ourselves or our history, why our world is like it is, unless we have an understanding of religion, because it's so crucial to how we've become what we are. Mm -hmm. I gradually became more and more fascinated with it, and as I did, I began to uh, feel that I was gaining a greater comprehension of of this world and um, having written this book I now feel that it's fascinating I mean walking around the place I feel I have a a greater understanding of how it all became as it did. A lot of the books the already published books it's probably the wrong word but they're they're sort of making an attempt to disprove religion through recourse to to science and again you're not you're not doing that here. There's some, there's no, a I'm not factor. remotely interested. I'm, it's, the title is on the book, uh, Atheist History of Belief, so I don't need to really get into whether gods exist. My assumption is I don't think they do. So I'm not really worried about that. I just want to understand religions, ask the big questions. Why, why are they there? Why do we... I see religion as a vast mm-hmm. invention, a vast work of human imagination as a novel writer I'm quite interested in imagination and I I suppose I would have the view well why did we invent Mm -hmm. this as we did why did it evolve as it did because religions have been constantly changing and I just want to think about that really indeed you you, you call it a few times like our greatest invention in terms of you know literature and yes well if you think of all the endless details Mm -hmm. the gods the the details of our invention of the supernatural world uh, which we can't see and it's an incredibly rich invention it's uh really puts i'm sorry to say all novel writing rather to shame i mean Mm -hmm. it's uh people have been imagining these details for tens of thousands of years and have come up with some extraordinarily rich details and so i think it's fascinating also it's a a tribute to our a power of our imagination let's start right at the uh, right at the very beginning then which is mm-hmm. which is always a, a good place to start and look at the the first 
first flowerings of the idea of religion. And we're talking now really at a point where, you know, a lot of this stuff is... There's archaeological evidence, but a lot of it is supposition. I, I, I yes. enjoy, through the book, you will often describe things as so-and-so, possibly a man, probably around this place, yes. probably at this sort of time. Yes, it's, in the it early was, days, it's quite hard to be precise. Mm-hmm. What were, let's talk about the, the first instance. There's a, a figurine that's been found, yes, like that's a child, right. like a, a lion with a lion's head. So tell us that's the story right. of that. Well, this is, uh, was found in southwest Germany in a cave, all broken up into bits. It's tiny, it's like an inch high. And it's, uh, as you said, it's got a lion's head, but it's a human body. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, you can't prove that there's anything to do with religion, but it's extremely, extremely likely. Because if you look at all the early hunter-gatherer societies, and you know, some of them are, are still, still around if much diminished, they were very into the idea of shamanistic, somebody going into a trance, a shaman Mm -hmm. or just ordinary people, and entering into a a spirit animal. And if you find images, I saw one just a couple of months ago in Canada, a very recent thing, a print of something very similar, half human, half animal. So I think it's very likely that this uh, tiny figure, 33,000 years BC approximately, was exactly that. It represents somebody going into a trance and becoming a, a kind of spirit animal. And in fact, you can see that it's of some significance because they found another mm-hmm. figure exactly the same in another cave just nearby, rather larger. So this indicates that this wasn't just somebody just making something they liked the idea of, but it mm-hmm. had some significance. And that sort of carries on, I guess, all the way to the, the, with the cave paintings mm. and places like Altamira. And, and yes. These things are always in caves. Things are more likely to last when we find them in caves, so that might account for some of that. But what do we think these people were doing in these caves? You would think that, you know, what with hunting and, you know, looking for animals and berries and trying mm. not to be killed and, yes. and trying to find a mate, they would Always. have enough on their plate. Yes. Well, I think they were probably living on the edges of the caves, <laughs> where the, the entrances of the caves, uh, where it was dry, but there's still some light and they could have a fire and whatever. But I think they probably explored into the caves and the caves clearly became a kind of meeting place between the their world and the spirit world, which they still are in mm-hmm. places like the Khaesan people mm-hmm. in uh, uh, southwest Africa. And they use the walls, the walls of their of caves, that they see it as a kind of, uh, almost like a veil between the living world and the spirit world. And they believe that the spirits live just beyond. Mm-hmm. So, so it's thought that these people were effectively going into the caves to try and speak to the spirits and, and bring themselves some kind of sense of control over their lives because if you were a hunter-gatherer in Europe 33,000 years ago your life was pretty precarious Uh, I mean the climate was freezing it was in this area of southwest Germany where they found these things you were wedged between two huge ice sheets one to the north in Scandinavia, northern Germany the other one in the Alps the climate was freezing you were dependent on finding animals to hunt you could catch diseases Uh, the weather could be vicious it was a precarious existence all the hunter-gatherer societies seemed to have applied to the spirit spirit animals gone into a trance to reach this spirit world to try and uh, bring themselves better fortune for three things weather disease and finding animals mm-hmm. all of which were crucial for their existence but there's evidence that people were were going into a trance even long before this mm-hmm. uh, because there's evidence that all of modern humanity originates with the same people in southwest africa and they found evidence in uh, a cave in uh, near cape town in south africa which they found uh, evidence of a, of a fairly sophisticated early human existence including they found a carve a sort of carving of which seems to represent when you go into a trance mm-hmm. you see uh, these shapes a sort of crisscross shape and these seem to represent uh, the same shape so probably although the evidence is thinner here people were doing this 70,000, years ago. Mm-hmm. But by the time we get to southwest Germany, the, this figurine, it's pretty likely. It's you know, pretty certain that that's what was going on. I'm Jonathan Meads, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You then talk about a, another site in Turkey that's yes. a recent discovery, but that is centuries and centuries 
old, twice as old as Stonehenge. It's we, got more, yeah. Yes. We, we, we're talking about another type of earthwork and, and stone circle. And this is a huge leap, really, from what we've been talking about with the trances and the, um, the lion carving. So this is like really the first sign of a piece of architecture that yes. might have some sort of religious or astronomical significance or whatever. So tell us about the site, first of all. It's we'll... called uh, Gobekli Tepe, mm-hmm. and it's in southeast Turkey. I sadly have not been there, but it sounds quite extraordinary. And it's, uh, it's on the top of a mountainside, and it's basically, they think, about 15 stone circles built on top of each other. Yeah. And they've only really begun to excavate the top ones. And, and they've they, been done that over the years, so yes. one's replaced another one yes. a, a, a thousand years later, and another well, they one's think replaced that another they one a thousand years later. The whole site went over, was existed, was built over a period of about one thousand five hundred years, uh-huh. and it started around eleven thousand five hundred years ago. And uh, what's very significant is eleven thousand five hundred years ago is the precise moment when people finally settle down because the climate improves. And they've, they've tried to settle down, didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a terrible thousand-year-long sort of mini-ice age, probably caused by a meteor in, the, in North America. And finally, the climate gets much better in the space of 10 years, and people can settle down. They're not farmers, but they can cultivate plants. They can, there's like sort of hunter-gardeners, mm-hmm. if you like. And they suddenly they're, they've got enough food, things are getting better, and they build, start building this extraordinary site, which is, seems to be the first temple may have involved human sacrifice that's yet to be the archaeologist who's working on it thinks that there may be bodies underneath Mm -hmm. the thing and it's an extraordinary sight and it seems to be uh, the beginning of something quite new but also people probably had the leisure time to do this sort of thing and there were more people because everything's getting better more food so that we're starting to gather into mm. small societies, or at least at least bigger groups. When we were yes. together, as we would have lived in much smaller yes, groups of people, now this and we're, and before then we were always wandering around. We uh-huh. This is the beginning of country life. If yeah, you know. people were beginning to live in sort of something like villages. And interestingly, I mean, it's often talked about that religions perhaps came out of this idea of settling down into smaller communities but actually you're positive the idea that it might be the other way around yes this is an extraordinary discovery mm-hmm. which is actually that they uh, people used to think well people developed farming and then they had organized religion it seems like it was the other way around they built this extraordinary thing on the top of a mountain nobody quite knows exactly mm-hmm. what they were doing there but uh, to, to make a long story short to do with farming you actually have to Develop. It was really our, our first foray into genetic manipulation mm-hmm. of plants. And we created a new kind of crop which just would not survive without us because it's like a kind of suicidal mm-hmm. variety, that, and that's what we eat these days. So basically to give this kind of crops a chance, they had to be replanted mm-hmm. and they had to be nurtured by us. But most of all, they had to be taken from one place and put in another place by us. It's very likely that... This is exactly what happened, that people were going up to this temple with bags of seeds and they were effectively sorting them out just by which ones were easiest to get, Mm -hmm. which was the suicidal kind. So we went up there and there's no evidence that farming was there in the early years of this site. But it seems that by the very process of going up there, carrying seeds around, that this actually happened because... The, sea, the foods that we eat these days, the wheat, the barleys, in the Western world, all seem to originate in one place. Mm-hmm. And this is a group of hills called the Karadag Hills, and these are 20 kilometres away from this site. So it seems a bit beyond coincidence. I think uh, religion caused our version of farming. Farming was invented in other places as well, but in the Western world, it seems that this temple caused it to happen. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Stonehenge. We're talking about a, a site, a stone circle of huge pieces mm. of rock. Which beautiful, would, beautiful carvings mm-hmm. on them of animals. But these things would have literally had to have been, you know, dragged from somewhere else to the positions that they were putting over. Yeah, over, it's not over very a long far. Of time, but. Not very far. They they quarried them on one side of the hill and they dragged mm. them to the summit. So, but still, they were massively heavy. Yeah. I mean, they were, I think, ten tons of them. So uh, people would have had to. He cut them out, and they were probably cutting them out with tiny flint stones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it would have been quite a labour. So what do we think? I mean, you've already mentioned the possibility of sacrifice, one form or another, and 
one of the things that you talk about in the book is, I guess, the invention of various types of things that we associate now with religious belief and and the concept of of, of sacrifice to a god is one of those so what do we think they were doing at this site so we have the idea nobody's quite sure in fact we probably it's easier to guess what people were up to when they were making that stone that tiny figure 33,000 years ago than it is with Gobekli Tepe probably involved was the the idea of sacrifice that and that I think is goes very deep in human thinking that's reciprocity Mm -hmm. how we relate to each other so why not relate to the gods? You know, you've got these creatures that you've imagined, these spirits, you think that they're out there, you think that they... Um, I mean, a key point of us is empathy. We're, that's one of our great human features, is empathy. Uh, that's one of our amazing skills. And uh, arguably that's what caused us to invent gods in the first place, that we can under- imagine each other's point of view to a quite extraordinary degree in which no other creature can chimpanzees can't bonobos are a bit mm-hmm. closer so our imagining of other points of view led us to imagine uh, points of view from spirits and whatever and when it naturally as we're interacting with these imagined uh, spirits these imagined gods we imagined that they would only do us a favor if we were going to do them a favor now doing them a favor had to be something pretty important mm-hmm. they weren't going to look after us and make sure that uh, the weather was good that we didn't get diseases unless we gave them something we cared about and um, certainly very soon after this extraordinary site of Gobekli Tepe was created there is another site called Kayonu not very far away mm-hmm. which seems there's strong evidence that a lot of human sacrifice was going on there so we were probably offering small sacrifices crops food mm-hmm. things that we didn't want to give away so yeah. that was the gods would be pleased with that but we were probably also offering human lives which was also something valuable there's um a theme a common theme through the book is that people do like you were given offering to a god of a little bit of food like you said when you say sacrifice everybody immediately is imagining you know a ripping the still living heart out of a virgin yeah, or something. Yeah. We're, we're, we're generally talking about a little bit of a food, votive offering to you know to a god, thank you very much for the harvest or whatever. Yes. And then the next year the harvest would fail and things would be bad and people would be starving. And so the theme I was trying to get to is rather than people say, okay, well, perhaps we ought to reconsider this, this whole God thing, that's the point when they would then up the ante and, and go looking for the Virgin. And that seems to happen <laughs> again and again, that we could never seem to stop attempting to appease these gods. No, because our fear was constant. Mm. And, uh, you know, if these not long after these people become farmers, and when they become farmers, of course, their fears, uh, if anything, increase. Because they're worried about the crops, the failing, they're worried about, and a lot of this happens early in Mesopotamia, the floods were incredibly unreliable, so, and you had more and more people depending on everything being exactly right. Mm-hmm. So it would have been, and Mesopot- early Mesopotamia is one of the most, uh, seems to have been one of the most intensely religious societies mm-hmm. the world has ever seen. They were constantly thinking that they might have done the wrong thing, they might have gone wrong, they might not have pleased the gods and this area in the early days basically you had a a sort of Soviet style controlled economy Mm -hmm. moving goods around in in industrial measures of these uh, to offer offerings to the gods so everything, the whole economy was based around offering to the gods, naturally Mm -hmm. most of them didn't end up being burnt for the gods because people would have starved to death, Mm -hmm. so you offered them to the gods the gods were placated, you hoped and then we don't know really what happened but it obviously got eaten Mm There's a, sort of incredible scenes there of, of the, the complicated nature of, of those sacrifices. So people would carry out some sort of ten-step process yes. to appease the gods and then be terrified that they might have got one of those steps slightly yes. wrong. Yes, because there were thousands of gods mm. and the rituals to placate the gods were enormously complicated. They varied minutely according to what you were trying to do. And out of this seems to have come uh, this very alarming concept, which was early sin which wasn't to do with you know, whether we've behaved badly towards each other. It was all to do with, have we got it right mm-hmm. in terms of uh, placating, the, the, doing the rituals to keep the gods happy. And this became such a, an intense thing in early Mesopotamia. People were constantly terrified that they might have got something wrong to the point that everything became reversed. So if something terrible happened to you, if your house burnt down or all your animals died, it wasn't just some piece of bad luck. It must be your fault. You had 
failed to keep the gods happy. And this is really a terrible invention. And the Mesopotamians wander around in a state of constant angst. And they, uh, they even name their children things like, what is my sin? <laughs> We're in Mesopotamia, which is the site of the, some of the first ever cities. And another technology that, yes. that gets invented, which again, you, you sort of link to our religious beliefs. And um, this is the tablets with cuneiform writing, the first yes. sort of writing system on them, which basically were records of accounting. Yes, the first, uh, the oldest uh, written things, other than just very simple, like number tokens or whatever, seems to be accountancy and uh, magic spells. So, and the accountancy was, uh, I said we were talking about how there's a kind of controlled economy, this vast quantities of animals and crops and beer and butter and anything you could imagine was coming into these warehouses around the temple. And it seems that they were they were writing notes as to who delivered the correct stuff. Uh, it's like a kind of supernatural tax, if you like. <laughs> the writing at some points, probably in a warehouse near Uruk in ancient Mesopotamia, they developed more sophisticated accountant keeping, and they developed uh, the first pictograms. The first writing appears. So <laughs> writing was inspired, along with Western farming, by religion. <laughs> Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Matthew Neal about his book An Atheist's History of Belief, Understanding Our Most Extraordinary Invention. And in this part, Matthew, I want to begin by, I want to gradually get us towards, again, the introduction or the invention of monotheism, mm. which is certainly in the West we would see as a key aspect of modern religions. But to begin with, I want to go back a little bit, and I'd like to talk a bit about Zoroastrianism, mm. um, which is... A religion, I, one of the founding religions of, yes. of all of the, the modern monotheisms, but it's something that I, I, I know very little about. Literally just coming here to meet you now on the tube, I saw a poster yes, I saw for it too. A, an exhibition at yeah. SOAS of Zoroastrianism. So um, let's talk about, I guess, Zarathustra, yes. who is the person. So tell us, um, what did he spake? What did, uh, what did <laughs> Zarathustra what um, did he think? Who was well, he? Well, he was uh, a priest among the early Iranians. We're not quite sure where they were. They could have been in Afghanistan mm. or somewhere in that area. And he was in, in a priest of this of the original religion they had. We know a little bit about this religion. They already had a, a heaven, a paradise, but it was only for the aristocrats. The rest just went to the standard miserable underworld which you find all over the world mm -hmm. in the early times and uh, Zarathustra seems to have been a bit of a radical firebrand he didn't like the fact that only the aristocrats got to this mm -hmm. new paradise he thought everybody should go he seems to have had it in for the aristocrats because he didn't like their warrior gods he had a new religion in which their warrior gods were bad and they actually become the sort of prototype for the devil mm -hmm. satan eventually he has preferred gods not just one it's not quite clear when zoroastrianism becomes a, a one god religion mm -hmm. it may have been much much later but he does have this new idea of a heaven for all which is you get into it basically by being good, by being good uh, to each other. It's not quite clear when this happens, when he lives. Mm -hmm. It's all rather unclear. But he invents this. He also has a very sort of black and white view of the world. So he sees that there's good and bad. There's the good bad gods, the bad gods. And uh, he sees a kind of battle between them. And he also has a new chronology, which will has really been with us ever since. Mm -hmm. There's a, a perfect time and... Uh, then the, the bad lot come along, try and smash the perfect world. And this has been a kind of beautiful, green, lush, perfect world. They try and smash the world, and then uh, the forces of good come back, and they stop the forces of evil, and they're left with a kind of 
it's not really a disaster, but it's not the perfect world anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's the world we live in. It's a bit messed up. Yeah. You know, there's deserts and there's diseases and insect plagues, and, but it's not too bad. But uh, Zarathustra comes up with the idea that if we're very good and we really work at it, we can create a perfect world in the future. We can regain it. And this is something that goes very deep into mm-hmm. later religions. And it's probably not Zarathustra, but probably his followers, because his religion is really very small in his time. It takes a long time to take off. Uh, have the idea that there would be a special person who would arrive, uh, who would be born of a, a virgin who's wandering around getting water in a lake, and there would be some of Zarathustra's own sperm would have been magically preserved in this lake would uh, reach the virgin she would give birth to a special person who would lead the forces of good to create this perfect world and he would be a kind of messiah mm-hmm. so these a lot of these ideas are very powerful but Zarathustra has a terrible time like all the early prophets getting his ideas across he wanders around feet he has to leave his home like most early prophets he's wandering about, uh, he can't convert, he only converts his cousin initially. Eventually he reaches a new place, we don't quite know where it was, probably in Afghanistan. He converts the wife of the king, then the king. He converts a lot of people in this place, but eventually uh, he makes a lot of enemies and apparently a priest of presumably the old religion mm-hmm. kills him. Uh, something terrible happens to the kingdom and his followers wander around for centuries before his religion really gets going. And something we've sort of skipped over in, in describing that Zarathustra sort of socialist overthrow of heaven yes, and making the, it available the, to everyone. Is raising that, the red flag. Is, um, is that, well, heaven itself is not something, I was quite surprised by this, was not necessarily a feature of the idea of a paradise is quite a, you know, a, a relatively recent inventive religion. Early religions so. did not have that. No, early religions all over the world seem to have the same dismal prospect mm. of a horrible underworld full of rotting bodies it's dark and it's damp and it's miserable and it's smelly and it was accepted that everybody went there even the early Mesopotamians they have this marvellous book the marvellous, the first great literature the Epic of Gilgamesh and it's about a king trying to escape his fate and live forever and he can't he's going to end up in the terrible afterworld too heaven appears in early Iran and it also appears in early Egypt. Mm-hmm. You've got, and it seems to begin. It seems to appear first of all for the rich and privileged and relaxed. So it's the Iranian aristocracy, and it's the first of all appears in Egypt for the pharaohs. They're the first ones who are going to have a great time after they die. They're going to be flying across the sky in the company of uh, the sun god Ra mm-hmm. each day, and. Uh, the early Egyptians become so captivated with the idea that this would be really a good thing and that if you if you worship your dead pharaoh, who's really like a kind of um, sort of half-god, mm. then he may put in the right words with the all-powerful sun god and life's just going to be so much better because you're, you, know, you won't have the problems with the crops and the floods and all of this. So um, this is why they build the pyramids. Mm. It's basically a kind of launch pad for pharaohs to go off each morning and they build, they put in boats for them to fly in and all sorts of, and they try and embalm them and uh, give them a palace to live in and lots and thousands of people looking after them so that they'll be probably dignified. The the idea then in Egypt at that point though is that look after the pharaoh or or look after the pharaoh's memory. The pharaoh is this sort of demigod and Ra will take care of us but now on earth. Then things change again in Egypt as well and and, and the the afterlife becomes a bit more democratic. There's a complete social upheaval. In fact there's one and then several centuries Mm pass called the Middle Kingdom. There's another one and each time it seems that uh, heaven becomes more democratized so it's rather hard to tell but it seems like the first time around it's the aristocracy use the same rituals the same thing that the pharaohs have enjoyed mm-hmm. they're now getting a kind of aristocratic heaven and then uh, by the what's called the new kingdom the, you have three heavens mm-hmm. so the ordinary poor farmers have their imagining of the best possible heaven they can have which is actually quite simple they're still farming the fields but out in some place far to the west and they're not going to get diseases and the, the rain's going to fall when you want that. So it's a, the life they've got, but you know without the worries. Mm-hmm. 
I want to make mention here as well of somebody that was talked about quite a lot on a, on a recent Little Atoms with the writer Jay Marchant was um, Akhenaten, who yes. was one of the uh, the Egyptian pharaohs. And, and I raise him because you do talk about him in the book, but he's he has a, a stab at introducing monotheism. Yes, yes, disastrous really, mm. and, and probably didn't really last in any way, but... Uh... He's a rather mysterious figure. He mm. definitely he wanted to have a, a new version of the main god, and uh, he tried to, to instill this. And um, for a while, he seems to have succeeded to a degree, although it seems that all the worship of all the old gods went on in Egypt, mm-hmm. all over the place. But uh, he wants to have one god only, it seems. And as soon as he, he dies... Everything goes wrong. The the old guard come back, and uh, they actually go to. It's really almost like sort of a Stalinist era and Trotsky or something. Is anything to do with Akhenaten is hidden away or papered over or covered over. His old his new capital is abandoned, and there's no evidence that it really takes in any way. By the time you get one god in a serious way, which is uh, in the, the Jewish world, a good few centuries, mm-hmm. you're looking at. Uh, five centuries at least later, it's doubtful that they were really thinking of Akhenaten at all. Mm-hmm. Some people have thought they may be, but it's doubtful, I suspect. I'm Jay Courtney Sullivan, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, I want to bring us on to really a, a huge subject, which we will, uh, <laughs> we'll tackle relatively rapidly, which is the, um, the, the origins, sort of interlinked origins and, and the growth from here of the... Uh, the three main religions of Judaism, Christianity, and eventually Islam. One other concept that I want to bring in before we do that, which I guess, again, stems from that idea of Zarathustra's, which is of the three ages, the sort of pre-Eden, the Eden, the after Mm. the fall, and then the sort of what will become the second coming of Jesus or whatever. And that, that time is often presented as being a sort of apocalyptic, like a sort of Mm. end of the world type idea. Where does that idea come from then, do you think? That comes quite late, quite a lot later, well after the invention of uh, one, the idea mm-hmm. of one god. And it appears around the 160s BC in Judea. And what's happened is Judea has been taken, has been occupied by a Greek kingdom, the Seleucids. And the Greeks, uh, some of the... What actually happens is some of the, the elite of the, among the Jews are very taken with all mm-hmm. this fantastic new greek thinking so there's a kind of cultural war going on and the more traditional jews want to go back to basics and re-establish the ideas of the the jewish religion and there is actually a, an actual war goes on as well and uh, the end of the world seems to have been part of a kind of liberation mm-hmm. theology if you like we're going to chuck out the greeks we want to have every weapon we can and uh, it seems that some scribes start adding to old jewish texts the book of Daniel, mm-hmm. uh, or creating a new uh, this thing, the book of Daniel, which is, involves some stories which were going around about really a kind of clever trickster, Daniel, which were probably popular folklore of the mm-hmm. time. And then they extend this into prophecies of the future. So Daniel, who's supposed to be at the court of the Babylonian court hundreds of years earlier, outwitting the Babylonian king, suddenly he starts this whole new thing, which is prophesying the future but actually a lot of what he prophesies has already happened so it's a kind of fake thing and then he prophesies the real future in the next few years late and the future is the greeks yeah. will be beaten the jews will win there will be a huge transformation the jews will have complete success in the world there'll be the good old days will be back from the several centuries earlier uh, and this transformation becomes a kind of end of the world and this idea then begins to gain a kind of momentum of its own you, you described the author of the stories of Daniel as, as a forger. And I, it's interesting to see that, you know, it doesn't take centuries later Richard Dawkins to spot this. Basically, people at the time, or yes. not long after, yes. noticed that there were inconsistencies yes. with that story. Yes, glaring yeah. inconsistencies. Yeah. And he actually had to sort of change things yeah. because the prophecies don't happen right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, yeah, OK, well, do carry on with the, uh, right. <laughs> the story because I want to get us to the, the point where... Well, Jesus, basically. Okay. uh... Well, I mean, what seems to happen is that the book of Daniel becomes a a big hit, and it seems that, well, this group appears, we know about them from what's been discovered as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are all 
obsessed with this idea of the remaking, the recreation of the old Jewish world in a kind of cataclysmic event, the Mm -hmm. end of the world. And they come not long after this book of Daniel, they begin to appear. They're probably, these texts are probably associated with a group that were known as the Essenes. And it seems that there were people who were who weren't just, some of them lived in a kind of monastic existence by the, the Dead Sea, but some of them were going out and bringing the message of the end of the world to ordinary people living in towns, they had families, and they were preachers, if you like. There is a, a fair amount of evidence, well, certainly that John the Baptist was one of these mm-hmm. people, he was associated with this group, and quite possibly Jesus as, as well. Or at least he would have been familiar with perhaps. Certainly would have been, the... but also they were very uh, well-versed on the Jewish mm-hmm. scriptures. Jesus knew them backwards, quite yeah. clear. Uh, and his message does seem to have been very much one of the end of the world. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In fact, uh, one of the historians looking at his life, J.J. Saunders, says that he thinks that actually he was, he was only preaching for a year or two up in the north of um, the Sea of Galilee, so quite far to the north, a sort of slightly remote, uh, poor area of little farmers mm-hmm. and things. And he, he takes these probably not very educated followers, maybe a couple of hundred of them, down to Jerusalem at the busiest time of the year, the Passover. And Sanders thinks that he went there to basically try and make the prophecies, prophecy come mm-hmm. true. He, th- he thought, all the, the New Testament texts seem to say that he thought he was going to be the new king of this revived Jewish world and that he was going to be a kind of viceroy of God. And he went to Jerusalem basically see this happen and almost to make it happen and he seems to have caused uh, some kind of scuffle or incident in the temple it's likely that he was saying this temple will be destroyed mm-hmm. and remade and as uh, you had all these people who'd gone there to sacrifice animals come from all over the, the Middle East to do this they wouldn't have been taken kindly to this and there were various other factors the the chief priest of Jerusalem was very wary of trouble because it was mm-hmm. Roman occupied there by this time. The Romans didn't take kindly to trouble. So it's quite likely that that's what actually led to uh, his arrest and, and execution. There's a lot of material in the book about the foundings and the interlinkedness of uh, Judaism and Christianity. And as I said, it goes on to talk about Islam. Interestingly, uh, one thing I wasn't aware of was um, when you describe the idea of the prophets still carrying on prophesizing the end of the world or the end times or, or the sort of return, and actually one of these people is encountered by a guy called Muhammad. Yeah, that's day. right. Later on. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, there there seems to have been a a lot of people in the Middle East at that time prophesying the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it seems to have been part of Muhammad's message as well. So uh, I think it's a constant feature around this time. 
Yes, no, definitely. Okay, well, as I, as I mentioned um, in the book, there's a lot of material about those, about the three <laughs> major religions, which I'm I'm pretty much going to skip over because I want to, to get on to other stuff. So anybody who's interested in that should, uh, <laughs> yes. should definitely buy the book. I want to bring in other religions from outside because yes. this I think this is in some ways a familiar story the the birth of the the three main monotheisms from similar ideas and the way that they're all all linked together but um it's interesting to look at religions growing that were completely cut off from that. Yes. so for instance you talk about the ones, a couple of examples I want to look at, but one of them would be sort of the Mesoamerican mm. religions and, and sort of the Aztecs and the uh, and Inca societies. And So let's talk about how a religion could, how, how religions develop in that sort of isolation, I guess. Yes, well, I was fascinated, I was fascinated myself because mm. I was thinking, well, if, if religion develops totally in an isolated way, Maybe they, who knows what they turn yeah. into, something completely different. And they, of course they do have all sorts of differences in the details. And, but actually what I was struck by was actually they're not as, nearly <laughs> as different as you'd think. Their society was more comparable with the early Eurasian African societies, the, the first farming society. You're looking really at the early Egyptians, the Sumerians, and how their societies operated. But um, the same fascinations occur. People were interested in placating gods. They were interested in, in trying to make the seasons keep coming. Uh, they were interested in you know, how to make sure that their crops would grow. And they had the same fears. And they seem to have come up with broadly the same sort of pattern. There are differences. And one of the major differences in, among the Mayans and the Aztecs was all across the Americas to some extent is they were very into human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you look in the very early farming worlds in uh, Eurasia and Africa, they were also, well, certainly in, in where we looked at the sites we were talking about, in early Turkey and that area, they seem to have been mm-hmm. quite into human sacrifice. So it may be that you know, they were just carrying on specialising in that for longer. But they're certainly, you can't say that they were really going for an entirely different picture. It's just that the... You know, naturally, if you're going to go, you're going to have spirit gods, and then you're going to evolve these into more permanent basic gods who you worship different animal gods, mm-hmm. which appear in India and Egypt and all sorts of places. The animals are going to be different because you've got different animals. But uh, you still have the same... The picture is not nearly as different as you might think. Mm-hmm. To Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Matthew Neal about his book An Atheist's History of Belief. Matthew, I want to look at a another example of a religion from elsewhere. And I think mm. this is this is a good example talking about Buddhism. It's a good example of often another thing that happens with religions, which is that they you know they start off doing one thing yes. and eventually end up like a you know a shadow of their former selves. And you talk about like, the early schism in, in the history of Buddhism. So give us a, a sort of brief recap of that story, where it uh, comes from. Yes, well, a Buddha seems to have been another firebrand, a bit like Zarathustra, mm-hmm. in that uh, in early India, it's hard to be precise, but there seems to have been a very entrenched religious priesthood caste. And Buddha, or Siddhartha as his real name was, Mm -hmm. seems to have been very concerned to break up the control of this caste. But he doesn't... It's doubtful that he was really creating a religion at all. Mm -hmm. I think what he was creating was a a philosophy of life. He wanted people to find tranquility and peace in their lives by escaping property desire, which he felt only made you unhappy. So some people think that he wasn't... He didn't even believe in gods, that he may have actually been an atheist. Or he may have believed in gods, but they just don't seem to have been a major part Mm -hmm. of his message. But uh, gradually, over the ensuing centuries... 
something changed. His followers become increasingly interested in the idea of an afterlife to such an extent that Buddha, who would have been absolutely appalled, becomes a god. And the idea of a heaven evolves because Siddhartha has the idea that you're stuck in this sort of circle of life and if you're really very fine real peace you'll escape this endless circle of desire and um, and this becomes a new concept which is heaven so escape to nirvana of a kind of peace becomes escape to heaven and this becomes more and more uh, complicated so in fact that you can have people who will help you into heaven they're called the bodhisattvas and that have the idea that actually you can actually have living people who are figures who will will help people into heaven and you can venerate them in their own temples they're still around what started off it seems as a very much a kind of philosophy ends up as uh, as everything that siddhartha would have hated which is a kind of very well entrenched uh, very status based religion one of the things that comes out of there and and i guess indeed is a feature of a lot of um sort of north indian originated religions eventually it happens in um, hinduism as well is this is the concept of reincarnation yes which is, which is, a, is a much more mm. green shall we say yes. um, version, yes. of, version of an afterlife and it wasn't just indian the early mm. greeks had it as well mm. it had uh, it makes a certain in some ways it makes more sense because if you believe in uh, that we we go to uh, an afterlife, we didn't exist before we exist, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a kind of inflation of souls. You're going to have a constantly increasing number of souls. Heaven, or whatever it is, is just going to be more and more crowded. Whereas the uh, Buddhist approach, the only Greek approach, reincarnation means you can actually have... It's just recycling. Mm-hmm. You know, The souls existed before, you're one of them, you'll continue to exist. I want to move us on to look then at some of the outcomes of the sort of side effects of religions, and then to get us on to, towards the end of the interview, some sort of modern religions. And, well, the one thing I want to take a look at is the rise of occultism in the Middle Ages Christianity, and you talk about witchcraft, and yes. you know, the, yes. the sort of rise of witchcraft. That whole black magic type thing is is like, it's a, a strange atavism. It's not something that obviously features in, in Christianity. And yet at that particular point in history, there's, you know, we know that there was terror of, of witches and stuff. So why, where yeah. did that sort of thing happen? Uh, well, the black magic was, pro- sorcery certainly mm. is probably one of the oldest forms of religion there is. Uh, it probably, it mm. seems to go back very far indeed. And uh, certainly there are various kinds of it. The Mesopotamians were seems to have come out of there and moved elsewhere. So, and it became Christianity became deeply opposed to it even mm. even before then. There are Romans are very against it. But then uh, witchcraft is really something different because sorcerers, you know, who carry on, they were sometimes accused of witchcraft. And in Britain, in fact, their sorcery was thought was mm. regarded as a kind of witchcraft. But witchcraft itself seems, or fear of witchcraft, because there was no real witchcraft, seems to have evolved almost uh, of its own accord. And it seems to have come out in part of persecutions of heretics, because they had specific ways, the church in Europe had specific ways of dealing with heretics. And as they really Mm -hmm. wanted them out of the way and totally discredited, they tended to accuse them of witchcraft, which was probably originally an early Mesopotamian Mm -hmm. belief that there were these flying female figures who were up to no good. And uh, strangely enough, the time when fear of witchcraft really reaches its height is actually during the Renaissance, not the medieval period. Mm -hmm. It gets worse during the Renaissance when you'd think that people were becoming uh, more laid back and having, you know, it was a more, when people were really having a greater age of reason, early age of reason, if you like. You do talk about dissenters and, and, and various sort of small groups of heretics and, yes. and outbreaks and as you said this is something that the established church has always been very much against and yes. but nonetheless religions do tend to change into more yes. by the actions of of sort of individuals so i guess why why does this happen i wonder because you know it, it does seem unlikely that people could make such a change to such powerful institutions well, I think, in a way, it's, uh, the world changes. So, mm. to some extent, every religion is a kind of uh, struggle between its earliest ideas and uh, the world around it. And they never stop changing. You know, They may change at greater paces at certain times, but they are never... You won't find a religion that just 
stays the same. And every religion, for that matter, has much older elements to it that go way back beyond Mm -hmm. its apparent founding. So you'd find elements of even the hunter-gatherer society going into a trance, arguably, is is pretty close to speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could see, and I argue, that religions are really like ice cores, and that if you look at religion, you're going to find elements that go right back to the beginning, even though... Uh, the official version is usually when well, it was invented at this time, mm. it all is just of this time, and they never stop changing. I'm Rosa Rankin G, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Bringing us, well, I was going to say right up to date, but certainly to the 20th, into the 20th century, we'll get a bit more up to date later on. But you talk about some political religions, I guess, mm. is, is the best way to describe it. And you mentioned Qutub and uh, political Islam and the rise of Islamism. And um, we could perhaps talk about the, you talk about the Nazis and the uh, their dabbling in the occult and things. We can, we yes. can sort of get onto that in a moment but we've mentioned all the way through this this interview these socialist elements of various religious yes. uprising and so it's no surprise that communism is is yes. one of the things that you describe as a as a modern religion yes well it's it almost has an element of uh, religion without a god mm-hmm. because uh, or if there's a god it's historical determinism because marxism i'd say it's an intense belief but it's also has an, an element of prophecy which it's really not what you'd expect of a kind of of a clear political creed. It's in fact Marxism has the same pattern that Zarathustra has. Mm-hmm. There's a bad past. There's or a, a part a different past. There's a a very unsatisfactory present, and then there's the hope of a golden future, except that uh, it's going to be the dictatorship of the proletariat. So that you can see elements of Marxism that really go back to Zarathustra and we're very much present in some medieval religious ideas medieval Christian ideas mm-hmm. and even heretical ideas I just mentioned the um, the Nazis and their sort yes. of, we're, I'm absolutely fascinated by this the actual extent to which the occult and their sort of odd religious mm. mind was not just it wasn't just a hobby that they did you know in their spare time it's, it's something that's integral to the yes. to the creed basically yes no I think that's right because you get uh, there's this woman Madame Blavatsky mm. uh, who comes up with this it's in the 19th century in the later 19th century it's a time when you get this idea that people are fascinated with new chronologies mm-hmm. of the world and they it's basically I have to say fairly dubious stuff Madame mm. Blavatsky said that she found this thing in a temple in Tibet which has a you know the true history of the world going back hundreds of thousands of years others were doing the same thing and uh, a couple of figures in Vienna do the same thing a lot of the the ideas that enter into Nazism come through this route so the the swastika the Mm -hmm. um, uh, all sorts of things the the idea of the Aryans the super race who had lived thousands of years before and the idea of the end of the world comes into as well. There's going to be a kind of cleansing cataclysm in which the Germans will be the master race as a result. And no, I mean, Nazism, certainly Himmler was very drawn to these ideas. And it has a presence. I mean, what uh, the terrible things, the ter- you know, the famously horrendous things that were done to uh, European Jews mm-hmm. were were very much... that how it, The whole approach was appeared in these terrible rags that mm-hmm. were produced in terrible magazines that were produced in pre-First World War Vienna. And some of the things that uh, these people were saying was how you define an area and how you define what actually became German national policy in the 1930s. We've talked often in this interview about, really, it, when it comes to religion, there's there's really nothing new under the sun. Everything's yes. been done before, and they take aspects from other places. But let's finish off, I guess, talking about a uh, a very modern religion and one that has been invented, created. And this is L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology. Scientology. We probably yes. should be a bit polite about them. Yes, they're definitely. Famously litigious, yes. But um, you can basically just invent a religion. Well, uh, arguably, yes. Uh, no, I mean, uh, he created... I mean, his religion began to appear, really, it began to evolve, went through a few stages, in late 1948. And it's immediately after the the Russians uh, developed their first atomic bomb. It's a time of great angst. It's a time of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Hubbard was a science fiction writer himself. And um, it's also a time of fascination with Freudian psychology. And he has the idea that people had had previous lives 
and that they would solve all their worries and angst and uh, traumas if they can retell their previous lives. And in Scientology, the next stage of his thinking, really, he has the idea that people had had previous lives over trillions of years. So he would get them to remember their previous lives in other planets, other galaxies. And I think it has part of its appeal was that this was a time of great angst uh, about uh, atomic war. Mm. And he says, well, basically, where we have, if you like, a part of us has been living for trillions of years. So where... You know, a little atomic war is, is of no consequence. <laughs> We're rapidly running out of time, but I just want to ask one final question, which I guess I'm going to ask you to quite glibly sum up in a couple <laughs> of sentences. But um, why, if, if none of this stuff's true, what do you think, what conclusion do you come to in, in the book as to why we generally invent religions and, 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 and crave some sort of mm. belief? I think it's for reassurance. I think from the earliest times to Scientology, it's the one theme you can find throughout history is that we, there were all the things we were most frightened of and worried about. We found religions that would reassure us and help us feel that we had some control over our lives, that we could appeal to some vastly powerful outside force and they'd help us out. That's a perfect point for us to end. So <laughs> I've been talking to Matthew Neal and we've been talking about his book, An Atheist's History of Belief, Understanding Our Most Extraordinary Invention. It's out now from Bodley Head. Matthew, thank you very much for coming in and talking to the class. Thank you, Neil. It was great fun. Can music smash the system? And is music journalism in a critical condition? Resonance FM's Little Atoms and The Pod Delusion present a night of cultural debate at the Conway Hall on Monday the 10th of February. David Stubbs, Boff Wally... And the Dunstan Bruce from Chumbawamba and more. Facing the music as part of Resonance FM's annual fundraising drive. Visit littleatoms.com for details. I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So I'm on the phone with columnist Suzanne Moore. And Suzanne, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I wanted to talk about a book that I first read when I was really young called A Book of Dreams by Peter Reich, who was the son of um, the psychoanalyst William Reich. And I've read it again recently, um, although it's out of print. It's very, very expensive now. And it's just one of those books that stayed with me and set off all sorts of chains of ideas. And so that's why I chose it. Remind us who Wilhelm Reich was, first of all. He was a psychoanalyst, but he had he had an incredibly interesting career. That's right. I mean, one of the reasons that I think I love this book so much is because Reich, one of those figures, he's pretty discredited now. But if yeah. you look and go back and see what he did, I think he's incredibly significant. He was... One of the first people really to, I think, try to fuse Marx with Freud. Uh, so he's living at a time where you've got these incredible new ideas and he's trying to put them together. And actually, a lot of what we talk about today comes from Reich. But he has been very discredited because towards the end of his life, he either, you know, he went mad or he became strange or he ended up being imprisoned. He ended up having his books literally burnt. Um, he was considered really subversive even by the other psychoanalysts that he had corresponded with. So I think he's just a really significant figure. I mean, the, the phrase sexual revolution, that's right. The idea that you can look at fascism as a kind of mass psychology as well as a political kind of movement, that's right. The way we think about healing and the body and mind together, that's right. You know, but as I say, I think he's been very kind of written off. Well, I think the idea that the, the orgone accumulators, which he, which yeah. he invented, which is sort of boxes yeah. to collect sexual energy, well, that's slightly ridiculous. What is amazing is, you've already mentioned that this is America, and it's America in the 50s and 60s, but yeah, literally they burnt his books and came along and smashed up his machine. That's right. Well, you see, the book, oh, shall I talk about the actual book? Peter, his son, wrote a book about what it was like to be a child growing up with this man who had he'd been persecuted, so he went to try and, you know, bring his thinking to America. And 
his thinking became, you know, this is a guy who was talking to Einstein, who Einstein was interested in, who Anna Freud was interested in. You know, this is a guy kind of really pushing the boundaries here. But he becomes, in a way, paranoid. And he thinks that he's being attacked by UFOs. But he also thinks he's discovered this new energy called orgone and starts building these orgone accumulators. He thinks he can bring rain to the desert. He thinks he can do all sorts of things and build these wooden boxes. So it's a very strange story. And Peter Reich is a 10-year-old boy writing about this. And it's a very impressionistic book because he's a child and you never know really if he... He loves his dad. Of course he does. He's a little boy and he, and he idolizes him. And his dad says to him, you know, Peter, people are after me. They're going to come and get me. Now, when you're reading it, you think, yeah, the guy is cracking up. But of course, the Food and Drugs Administration did come. They did arrest him. They smashed up everything he did on this on his farm called Organon and put him in prison and burnt his book. So you see, the paranoia is real. You can tell that the little boy never really knows what is real. And I think these books by people's sons are really interesting. Another book I like is R.D. Lang's son's mm-hmm. account of what it was like to grow up with Lang. You know, these great figures, sometimes they're not particularly brilliant parents, but, you know, they're very interesting. And it's not just me that likes this book. I wanted to sort of make um, another connection because well, one of the other reasons that I kind of think this book keeps coming back to me is because some of the music that I really like refers to this book. Kate Bush, for instance, wrote a song called Cloud Busting, which is based on this book. It's Wilhelm and Peter, his son, going off with these strange machines to shoot up what they think is all going at the clouds to make it rain. And that's what cloud busting is about. I mean, the first line is, I still dream of organ on this is the farm that they owned. Patty Smith reads this book and writes Birdland, which is taking Mike's kind of thinking to its logical conclusion where the little boy actually comes and is rescued by UFOs. I want to go up, 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 up. And Patty Smith, of course, being the kind of person that she is, almost sees Rag as a shaman, I think, and I think she herself has those qualities. So it's very interesting to me that this book sparks these songs and these other kinds of thinking. You know, I don't think many books do that, and this book does it. And uh, as I say, I think I don't want to completely rehabilitate right because I think there's problems here. But why does somebody that sort of kind of subversive, I mean, if this stuff he was doing, I'm not saying I believe it, but why, if all going doesn't exist, did they have to smash up all the stuff? I mean, they literally came and smashed it all up. It's crazy. I met a guy once who said he had an all-going accumulator and he topped them. And, of course, when you see one, they are just wooden boxes. They're little wooden boxes with linings of metal. And it is all a bit nuts. But um, I just think, what a person to try to, I don't know, bind together the idea of all this psychoanalytic knowledge about our unconscious, our repression. I see repression is a very Reichian concept with what goes on politically in the real world. And he and he did do that before he sort of went off on this weird tangent. Presumably they're coming in and smashing up his stuff and, and imprisoning him because of the central role he's playing in, you know, what would subsequently become the sexual revolution, the 1960s yeah. and things. And this does feel, the book was written in 1973, and because of what it is, you know, it's loosely described on Amazon as a biography of his father, which clearly is is so much more than that. But it feels also a part of that sort of completely different books, but, you know, that whole sort of Carlos Castaneda, Jonathan Livingston, Seagull sort of countercultural books. And now we need that sort of thing, but nobody does it, do they? Why do people not write these sort of books anymore? That's the context in which I read it myself, I think. You know, I was reading those kind of books. I was taking a lot of drugs. I was experimenting. Um, you were looking for new ways of thinking. And I think that now we're really afraid of that stuff. I mean, I don't want to just say, oh, come on, bring back all this hippie stuff. I mean, right, because, you know, they had gone through the Holocaust. They wanted to find out why people did what they did and what these deep connections were, you know. And as I say, to fuse the body politic, to fuse Freud and Marx together was a really radical thing. So, I mean, the older I get, I look back at that stuff I read and yeah, there's sort of kind of hippie madness in it. And yet it's very countercultural with all the kind of, um, you know, the associations that people take take the piss out of these days. But at the same time, this is very radical thinking. It's so radical, I think we still don't know what to do with it, actually. As much as I hate to say it, the person that's most come close recently to suggesting any of this change of consciousness is probably Russell Brand. 
Yes, I'm afraid so. I mean, and I think, again, you know, this whole the mind, the body, I mean, the person who challenges, of course, is Foucault because he references Reich and says the whole thing about repression, actually, of course, there isn't such a thing as repression. Things always come back in a different form. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about a revolution in consciousness, this still seems a very strange way to talk. But, I mean, I think it's interesting to me as a, I guess, as a feminist and thinking about sexual liberation, I don't really think that Reich has the answer, you know, that always. But it's interesting that these two incredibly influential women musicians, you know, pick up on this stuff as well. I think there's a, you know, there's there's a sort of strange kind of, I don't know, there is a strange energy around it because he's saying that um, he's one of these, the first people really to say something about healing. And I suppose quite a lot of new age mm-hmm. concepts that we have about environmentalism and healing, about prevention rather than cure, that if we hold our bodies, you know, and we are very sort of physically repressed and unhappy and miserable, that could make us ill. No, I think there's a lot of problems with thinking like that. But he is thinking, he's starting to talk, of, you know, about this stuff. I mean, of course, if you put this up against any real science, like Einstein was very interested in him. Einstein spent a lot of time with him and the orgone accumulators. And then he just concluded that the temperature at the bottom of the box was slightly different to the one at the top of the box. And there was nothing to this. Then Woody Allen, of course, has great fun with it in um, in his films, you know, and there's the orgasmatron and it's all this stuff. But what I'm trying to say is underneath all that, and because Peter Wright lived it, you really get this sense of this man being persecuted for thinking. And yet we don't talk about Reich anymore. I mean, he has just been kind of, we talk a little bit about Freud, but it seems to me that his ideas are still somehow dangerous. Because if you are talking about revolution, you say it's about more than the material, which he is saying, which Russell Brown was saying, people just go, oh my God, you know, you've just been smoking too much or something. But ultimately, these people just had, putting aside all the hippie bullshit, what they had was a vision for a better world. And that's the yeah. thing that seems to be, as I said, lacking from so much social activism these days. Yeah, and when, because I was interested in Peter Wright, and you read interested him, and he simply says he doesn't really know what happened because, you know, he was a little boy. And the book is very impressionistic. I mean, he, he said that his dad did see UFOs and persuaded him that he saw UFOs. I mean, the guy is delusional. I mean, I think at this point, but... He said he was with him when they shot stuff up into the sky and, you know, they did make it rain and all this stuff. And we know now that we can make things rain, planes fly around and we do that, don't we? I mean, we can do that. But we just don't call it what Wright called it. So, yeah, I'm just making a case for... But I Actually, I love this book because it's just a beautiful thing to read. And um, I don't meet many people who've read it. And if, if anyone has read it, then I think they would kind of know why I became slightly obsessed with it. Well, it's a good thing to talk about it because it's currently out of print in this country. So perhaps getting it out there into the uh, into the world could possibly go some way to changing that. So, uh, Suzanne Moore, we've been talking about Peter Reich's A Book of Dreams. So thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks, Neil. You've been listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to help support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.